North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. The following episode is a crossover from the CSIS Korea Chair's live YouTube series, The Capital Cable, which provides cutting-edge analysis of events on the Korean Peninsula and how these events impact the United States and Asia. Good morning, everybody in the United States. Good evening, everybody in Korea, South Korea. Good day to everybody else watching around the world. Welcome to the eighth installment of the Korea Capital Cable. I'm Mark Lippert, the host of this bi-weekly program put on by CSIS and the Korea Chair at this esteemed institution. This week, we have a very special guest to cover what the Financial Times calls the worst ever economic downturn for North Korea and its implications. Our favorite topic on this show, October surprise. Well, we have one. Kaesong on lockdown as the coronavirus situation escalates in North Korea. What life is like in the South Korean National Assembly from the eyes of a former North Korean diplomat turned South Korean politician. And lots and lots of questions from the audience. With us to guide us through this very special episode, former deputy ambassador of North Korea to the United Kingdom turned South Korea sitting National Assemblyman, Mr. Tae Yong-ho. Welcome to the show, Hwaning Hamida. Good to see you this morning. And with us also our usual guest, uh, Victor Cha, head of the Korea Chair Program at CSIS, Vice Dean of uh, Georgetown University. I'm former Bush NSC Korea Director and really all things New York Yankees that I always <laughs> point to. And last but certainly not least, Sumi Terry, esteemed uh, former CIA uh, analyst, esteemed former NSC policymaker and with uh, the Korea chair as well as a senior advisor and always coming from us from one of the best locations, that great looking study you have. I'm jealous. All right. With that, let's get to it. As they say, we've got a packed agenda and a very special guest, and we're going to spend most of the time talking to our guest uh, rather than us talking. So I'm going to be true to my word here. Mr. Tay, we are now seeing in North Korea the emergence of a pretty, what I would call dire economic situation, or at least signs of that. We had a weak economy with sanctions going into COVID. Now you have the international economic downturn, halt of tourism in North Korea, a basically a contraction of the economy. In addition, now we have serious flooding. Uh, at Reuters said there are some uh, 43,000 North Korean Red Cross volunteers mobilized uh, across the country. And some have said that uh, the North Korean leadership publicly for the first time has opened uh, the reserve food stock, which is very unique um, in, in, in North Korean history. So to you, to start us off here, what should we make of all of this? What's happening in North Korea and what are the implications? Very easy questions for you. <laughs> Thank you. Hello all uh, in U.S. I think we have to admit uh, that we are living in a very, you know, unexpected uh, world because of this, uh, the, the COVID cases. But I think North Korea is one of the countries that are where a lot of unprecedented are taking place, even from the beginning of this year. For instance, now in North Korea, uh, there must be editorial, joint editorial or after Kim Jong-un's 
uh, period, there must be a New Year message uh, every uh, on the New Year's Day. But this year, there was no New Year message or even joint editorial from Kim Jong-un. You know, this New Year's message is very important in North Korean society because in that speech, Kim Jong-un usually set out the blueprint of his, you know, economic priorities. But this year, there was no new message. So people in North Korea were puzzled. What, is, what are the economic priorities? Because there was no any clear mentioning. And from the beginning of this year, people thought that Kim Jong-un may continue his uh, tourism projects, which he had already invested a lot in the last year, for instance, San Kalma, you know, tourism project, and even Yangdok, and even Samjian. So people expected that these tourism projects uh, must be his important economic goal. But all of a sudden, you know, Corona happened in China. So if you read North Korean medias, all of a sudden, there was no any coverage of these tourism, the projects, but, you know, the Kim Jong-un visited a fertilizer, you know, factories or, or the other, you know, some the, the priorities. All of a sudden, in the middle of, you know, this year, Kim Jong-un, because of this corona, he said that the building of new Pyongyang hospital is his big, you know, the project this year. So that is a little bit, you know, sudden arrival of new projects in uh, North Korea. So the whole money seemed invested on that uh, Pyongyang hospital. But a few months after this Pyongyang hospital, you know, last month he appeared at the Pyongyang hospital construction site and he showed a very angry, you know, image to North Korean people. He was very, very angry because the construction project was done not by the government investments, but by, you know, the lending, the uh, private, you know, the funds from people or giving a lot of burdens to people. So on the spot, he removed all the responsible people who were engaged in that hospital uh, construction. This is the first time in North Korean history that Kim Jong-un visited some place and then he showed kind of angry image and on the spot, he removed all the people who were, you know, in charge of that project. So that means that now the, I mean, foreign currency pocket of Kim Jong-un is getting, you know, smaller and smaller because he said that this Pyongyang hospital was number one project in his economic plan, but he can't in, even in open up his purse. That's why the, People, the cadres on that construction site even mobilized, you know, the private funds, which were the target of his uh, the criticism. And then he went up to fertilizer plant and uh, he had a ceremony of fertil opening of fertilizer constructions. But through the pictures of Rodong Simun, we can't see any kind of chimney, you know, sending out the smoke of this chemical fertilizer factory. So the factory, fertilizer factory, which Kim Jong-un opened for the ceremony of the running, actually it was not running at all. You can see from the pictures. So uh, the things are getting uh, very, very worse in uh, North Korea. I'm not sure whether it is right time for me to mention about what 
you know, Ambassador Lippo mentioned about Kim Jong-un's his own reserved food or not at this, you know, at the please, time. Please, please, please mention yes, that. Yes. That's the, please. That's right. Uh, now, uh, uh, Kim Jong-un visited, you know, this flooded area in Umpa County. And for the first time in North Korean history that the Supreme Leader ordered the immediate release he, uh, of his reserved grain. Grain. Of course, in North Korean history, this is not the first time because in the late of 1990s, Kim Jong-il, the father of Kim uh, Jong-un, uh, he released a couple of times of this reserved grain. And in April of 2012, when Kim Jong-un first took the office, he also ordered uh, the release of 100,000 tons of this reserved grain. But North Korea never opened, publicly never, you know, uh, opened the statements of this release. But this time, even all North Korean statement media said that Kim Jong-un ordered this immediate release. And also, you know, the day before yesterday, the trucks of these, uh, the reserved grain arrived the place. People were so much, you know, happy and surprised to see these reserved grains. So, uh, to me, I think it was really a shock why North Korea uh, uh, opened, of officially, you know, uh, opened this kind of, you know, uh, the news of release reserved grain. Maybe there are uh, two reasons. The first is North Korean uh, food situation is really serious. So that's why in order to uh, please or in order to calm down this satisfaction of North Korean people, Kim Jong-un now has to do something. So that's why now he wants to please North Korean population and calm down this satisfaction by releasing this reserve food, which must be used only for the case of the war. So that is, the, I think, first thing. Second thing, why Kim Jong-un decided to, you know, open this news because he to me, I think he wants to send a kind of signal of SOS to China because even though he appealed for food aid to international community, it will take some time to send uh, food aid to North Korea. But uh, China is different. If Chinese uh, uh, is uh, resolved to send immediate food aid, China can uh, move very quickly. So I think Kim Jong-un wants to send a very clear SOS, you know, the message to Xi Jinping uh, and by asking immediate economic aid to North Korea, I think. Well, Mr. Tay, just to follow up on that. So just two open-ended questions. First, what are all of these environmental impacts doing to the strategic thinking of the regime in Pyongyang? How is it changing their calculation, uh, if at all? And the second question is, are the Chinese likely to respond? And what will likely be the next move from the North Koreans if they get at least some relief from China? Where, what will they do next in terms of the like, humanitarian uh, situation? China always tried uh, to use the leverage of food aid as a kind of means to control uh, North Korea. So I think if China uh, sends food aid uh, to North Korea, I think this is not a free food aid. China always asks North Korea to do this or that. So I think if uh, Xi Jinping sends food aid to North Korea, he 
will clearly ask uh, Kim Jong-un not to do any, you know, provocations during the second half of uh, this year. And if Kim Jong-un gets enough food aid to come down the dissatisfaction of North Korean uh, population, I think Kim Jong-un will not go big, you know, strategic provocations which destabilize the situation of this uh, region. So it will depend how much and how quick China will react to this SOS signal by Kim Jong-un. This is great stuff. Uh, let me bookmark that there. Let's pause there. Let's get Victor and Sue's analysis. Victor, basically same set of questions to you, your take on all of this and implications. Um, so thanks, Mark. Um, so I, you know, like uh, the, um, uh, the National Assemblyman said, I mean, I think there is I think we have a, a double whammy, if you will, because what you have is the, the flooding that has uh, really impacted the food situation. Um, you know, there are these press reports that say that, uh, uh, you know, upwards of 40 to 50 percent of the arable land in the country now is devastated from the flooding. Uh, the flood started to wash away all of the all the efforts at fertilization. You know, the annual fertilization has all been washed away. Um, so they have a real, they're going to have a really bad harvest uh, coming in the fall. Then you combine that with um, the measures that are taken because of the pandemic, right? The closing off of the border with China, the decrease of what? It's something like 70% uh, quarter on quarter, year on year in terms of bilateral trade between North Korea and China because of the quarantine. Uh, and you have a perfect storm. I mean, this is... Um, uh, I think, as you as you mentioned at the top, there's this is a major contraction of the North Korean economy that's expected by the end of this year, something we haven't seen since the famine years, right? The Great Famine, and so there's a lot of pressure on the regime and the leadership to perform. And I think that's why, as uh, Ambassador Tay said, I think that's why you know you see these dramatic, um, dramatic you know visits by the leadership to Hamgyong Province to Unpa. You know, this emergency release of food stocks, you know, doing these dramatic things to show that they're trying to uh, compensate for what's happening and also to send signals to China and maybe also to the international community, the World Food Program. Sue, your take. Yeah, I, I just uh, there is no question that I think Kim Jong-un is dealing with a lot of uh, economic pressures, domestic pressures uh, right now. Um, clearly, North Korea's uh, statement on the release of the reserve food, uh, uh, as Assemblyman said, um, that means the food situation is uh, very serious. And North Koreans themselves um, said safeguarding um, the Korean, North Korean people's uh, lives against COVID is more important than economic development. So now on top of this uh, situation, they themselves then still said COVID, dealing with COVID is more important than economic development. So they're also taking COVID very, very seriously, right? Rodong Shimun uh, noted that the country's emergency quarantine work is now higher priority uh, than meeting economic projects um, that they were supposed to be completed by October 10th, uh, the ruling party's 75th founding anniversary. So, you know, all of this and then the flooding and food shortages and, 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 and the stresses of COVID um, were, you know, at, we, we talked extensively about all of this in the previous episodes in our show, that this is, they're dealing with major stresses to economy. And then, you know, their, their self-isolation measures that they have taken to prevent COVID, they will also continue. 
And so that's why North Korea's fiscal resources are completely overwhelmed. Um, they had to scrap the five-year economic plan. Um, and we talked about um, they had to help force local businesses and entrepreneurs uh, to, to, to buy public bonds, to finance the state budget. So the question that I really have um, is, given all these stresses, uh, how long can North Korea continue this way without significant sanctions relief? And even if they were to get sanctions relief, I don't know how they were, you know, how much it would help. And so that does at least raise a question in my mind, you know, if the China, if the Chinese does not come in and help, um, they will be in real trouble. So maybe at this time, you know, China does have leverage over North Korea because, you know, they're in dire situation. Okay, let's ask Mr. Tae that very question. How long uh, can North Korea keep going in this trajectory without significant sanction relief? And two, what are the implications for possible negotiations, not just with China, but also with Washington? And you, uh, I think, have pointed out before that uh, Kim Yo-jong, in her last, in one of her public statements, she mentioned the Hanoi deal and your interpretation on how all of that comes together. Yes, so mainly uh, uh, the three questions, how long North Korea uh, can survive without any arrival of food aid or you know, without relief of uh, the sanctions. Uh, really, uh, North Koreans are thinking this way. They think that as long as China you know, uh, stands behind North Korea, they can uh, still go on. And in the past history, when North Korea really, really, you know, reaches the final, you know, the end, it was always Chinese, uh, you know, the help was there. So Kim Jong-un regime strongly believes that even though sanctions goes on, China will help uh, to let North Korea survive. So they still believe in that even though sanctions is there, but Chinese, you know, the help would arrive. I think that is the mentality of uh, North Korean regime. And what would uh, this kind of, you know, of food shortage or economic difficulty will influence relations between U.S. and uh, North Korea? I think first, uh, in spite of these economic difficulties or food shortages, North Korea uh, will not give up its uh, nuclear program. That is for sure. Uh, even though people are starving or dying because of hunger, whatever, they will not you know, kill this economic, uh, the nuclear project. That is for sure. And uh, the, another thing uh, is that they think that uh, now this is uh, the uh, election, the period in uh, United States. That's why the American uh, Clinton, uh, the Trump administration period uh, will not pay United any States great attention on North Korean issues or will not even intensify its economic sanctions. So they still believe in there are much room to you know, survive. So, and this comes into Kim Yo-jong's statement. Yeah, yes. Oh, Kim Yo-jong uh, downplayed uh, the possibility of the meeting between his brother and President Trump. But on the meanwhile, he indicated that the final decision will be made by his brother. So she still opened the possibility 
of this summit. And on the meanwhile, she also uh, referred to Hanoi offer, which uh, Kim Jong-un offered in Hanoi to President Trump. She even emphasized about the significance of dismantling the Yongbyon project to North Korea's whole uh, nuclear program. So in her statement, she said that North Korea is not interested in any kind of, you know, uh, the, for instance, American terms of uh, denuclearization programs. But on the meanwhile, in her statement, he tried very hard to remind President Trump about the significance of Yongbyon offer. He wanted to remind President Trump again what really discussed and communicated in Hanoi. So that's, he, she tried to bring President Trump back on the memory of Hanoi. I think that is one of the significance in her statement. The question then is um, to you, we've got kind of these interesting currents. You've got the Chinese weighing in saying food aid means no provocation. You've got the North Koreans not going to give up their nuclear program. You've got the election period in the United States, but you've also got a, a reminder that the offer is still on the table from the last summit. Yes. What's going to happen? Just your best guess on what's going to happen, Mr. Tay. And then I'm going to go to Victor and Sue. Mr. Tay, your question. Over to you. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, uh, last week, President Trump uh, emphasized that uh, he may get, you know, very quick deal if he wins a re-election. But there is no any concrete, you know, uh, conditions of offer uh, in last week's uh, President uh, Trump's statement. So I think it is my impression that Kim Yo-jong still wants to pressure uh, President Trump to accept Hanoi, you know, the offer. So if the President Trump gives a kind of signal to Kim Jong-un that he is ready to reach a very minimalist deal by accepting Hanoi offer from Kim Jong-un, then maybe Kim Jong-un would move very quickly for a kind of October surprise. But if President Trump uh, does not come back and uh, ready to accept Hanoi offer, then the Kim Jong-un would not, you know, offer any kind of October gift or surprise to President, you know, the Trump. So still, North Korea is very much obsessed with the offer which Kim Jong-un gave to President Trump in Hanoi. Okay, great analysis. Thank you for those fantastic insights. Sue, your take on these cross-cutting currents and the comments of Mr. Tay. So I think that's right. I mean, North Koreans left a small window uh, for uh, another summit, but they will only have that if it comes with significant carrots. They do not want to repeat Hanoi uh, because there was great embarrassment uh, and they don't want to repeat that. So they made it very clear that Yongbyon might be back on the table, but it has to come with significant sanctions relief, which they requested in Hanoi. So um, I'm not sure, you know, time is running out. It's already mid-August, uh, it'll be September. And, you know, I, you know, I think we're running out of time for that October surprise. And, you know, because unless we are ready to give the significant sanctions relief, this is not going to happen. 
Um, you know, and it's, I think even Trump understands that even another substance-free summit is not going to save Hillary's re-election bid. He, it, it, right now, it's all domestic issues that's that's more of a priority, right? Uh, Americans don't necessarily vote uh, on foreign policy issue. So I think we're running out of time. I think what's going to happen is, um, you know, they have wasted basically two last several years since, since the Singapore summit. Uh, Kim Jong-un wasted an opportunity to conclude a deal with the Trump administration. And if the Biden, you know, if we now if we're dealing with President Biden after November, I, I don't think Biden will be going for this kind of substance free uh, summits and um, diplomacy. And, you know, if there's going to be a deal, it's only going to be after Kim Jong-un takes concrete steps towards denuclearization which is not just offering up Yongbyon, which we know is an important facility, but only one of many. And what the Biden administration is going to you know, uh, seek is uh, some sort of a concrete step, which means North Korea providing an inventory of their nuclear program, facilities, weapons, stockpiles, fissile material, allowing inspectors into the country and all of that. So, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, it's, it's, you know, it's on Kim for having wasted this opportunity to conclude another deal with, with Trump. I think we're running out of time. Okay, Victor, same question to you. So I think the, the key question is whether North Korea would be willing, for a deal, for so-called October surprise, would be whether the North Korean leadership is willing to accept some sort of partial sanctions relief rather than complete. Because it's unrealistic to expect that the United States is going to offer complete and full sanctions relief for Yongbyon. And so in Hanoi, Trump mused about the idea of partial, a percentage sanctions relief, which uh, there was no real response to. So I think that's sort of the key question on, uh, with regard to that. The other one is, you know, the extent to which Trump deludes himself into believing some sort of deal with North Korea in October is gonna help his election efforts, re-election efforts. I think as Sue said, I don't think it will, but he lives in his own reality and he might believe that doing something like that could, uh, could help him. Got it. And before we move on, let me put a bow on this round by asking Mr. Tay one more question on, on this subject, which is you just heard what Victor and Sue said, that American politics might be a major driver or a major factor in all of this. Two quick questions, I'm correcting myself, two quick questions. How closely are North Koreans following the US election? And two, your take on all of the implications of the US elections on the North Korean strategy. Yes, uh, usually before Trump administration, during the election period, uh, was regarded by North Korea as a kind of good period to buy the time to develop its uh, strategic uh, weaponry because North Korea knows very well that during this election campaign period, usually American administration together with politicians are very much obsessed on domestic issues rather than international uh, issues. So they think this is a very good time to uh, do a lot of uh, military provocations to improve. But this time, it's 
a little bit different because this is a Trump election. And Kim Jong-un met uh, Trump uh, three times, and he knows very well that the re-election of uh, President Trump would give him another chance to make a very a small deal. If it's Joe Biden, then it is entirely different guy he would deal with. So still, Kim Jong-un wishes very well that re-election of President Trump. So this time is very special. So still, Kim Jong-un, I think, is thinking what is best, you know, chance for him to do military provocation or look at the chances of Trump's winning. So if I do the betting, I think Kim Jong-un would do something favorable to President Trump. That's really interesting. Victor Sue, great, great stuff. And, and Mr. Tay, fantastic um, analysis here. I mean, I think we're at the heart of it, right? Which is this is a unique confluence of unusual circumstances, uh, unusual circumstances heading into a, a, a very important election here in the United States. Um, and I think we've gotten to that really important point here. Let me then pivot to our final topic before we get to the long list of questions we've got from our viewers. Mr. Tay, coming back to you, Okay, so we're in the run-up to this election. You're advising uh, President Trump. You're advising Vice President Biden. What advice would you give the American president or uh, candidate in the run-up to this election? I think uh, I want to advise uh, President Trump or John uh, Biden that the denuclearization of North Korea is really a long process it cannot be solved with one or two deals. So there must be a lot of deals or discussions. But most important thing is the first button. What would American administration would do for the first deal? Because in North Korea, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs were instructed by Kim Jong-un and by, by the Central Committee of the party that any deal with America should serve for the purpose of nuclear disarmament deal in North Korean terms, not denuclearization deal. So, so in North Korea, the party is very much sensitive the what the difference between denuclearization, you know, or the deal and nuclear disarmament deal. So, for instance, if foreign ministry at the first deal accepts a kind of America's, you know the principled, uh, the arguments like to agree with the giving the list of North Korea's uh, nuclear stockpiles and agree the uh, CVID, uh, the principles of disarmament, then uh, that is the thing which North Korean diplomats cannot accept. Because if North Korea accepts this kind of first button of denuclearization process, then they would be, you know, this. But if America, if North Korean diplomats succeed in that giving up uh, Yongbyon, among of, you know, the big, a lot of, you know, North Korean uh, assets in return for at least, you know, lifting of one or two sanctions, then this is not, according to North Korean terms, this is not denuclearization talk. This is nuclear disarmament talk, like what happened between Soviet Union and America, for instance, 
according to North Korea's theory, when America and Soviet Union have this kind of, you know, nuclear deal, they always nuclear disarmament. So nuclear missiles are there, but only to the big, these brothers agreed to reduce some of it. So they are still nuclear power, even though agreed to reduce it. So North Korea wants the same kind of, you know, treatment from America. So that's why the most important thing for, for President Trump or John Biden is to force Kim Jong-un to accept a very principled process of denuclearization, like agreeing to the nuclear, the lists, and also accept the CVID, you know, the principle. That is the first thing they should reach, no matter, you know, whether Kim Jong-un keeps his nuclear missiles for five years, 10 or years or 20 years. The principle is most important thing, I think. All right, excellent analysis. I, Sue, I saw you nodding along. Quickly, your comments before we get to questions. I'm going to go to Sue, then Victor, and then we're going to get to questions in the last couple of minutes. No, I, I think that's 100% right. Um, what they want is arms control deal. Uh, they, they're not going to give up nuclear weapons. They want to be accepted um, internationally as a nuclear power. That, that So at best, we can get an arms control deal or a freeze deal. And you can debate the merit of having such a deal, but even for an arms control deal and freeze deal, deal to work, and they have to be serious even about that. But we, we, don't, we don't know if they are serious because they're unwilling to start from the beginning, which is they have to give an inventory of their program, right? Their facilities, again, weapons, stockpile, you know, fissile material. Youngbird is one of many. You know, I'll just give a quick plug on our CSIS Korea chair. Victor can talk about it. We just did a, a, a report on this one plant, Tongsan uh, Uranium Concentrate Plant that provides uh, that produces uranium concentrate. Um, that has to be included on any future deal. So they have to start with an inventory, which they are not a declaration. They have to allow in international inspectors in, even for a freeze deal. But I think Mr. Tay is 100% right. On principle, we need to stay consistent with uh, denuclearization. And that's what we're looking for. Great stuff, Sue, as always. Victor, over to you. I don't disagree with any of that. I mean, I think this is a big question for the Biden administration when they um, come into office next year in, in the sense that they need to decide whether they're going to do containment with North Korea. They're going to continue to go for CVID and do this incremental thing, or they're going to move to what uh, Assemblyman Tay said, this sort of arms control approach where um, you don't um, and maybe they don't say it publicly, but you don't focus so much on CBID, but you focus on minimizing the threat. So things like uh, fissile material cutoff treaty, a test ban treaty with the North, things of, things of that nature. All right, great stuff, Victor. Okay, we are going to go to questions. First question, and it dovetails with a question I was going to ask Mr. Tay, what is it like being a member of the National Assembly, given your background? This is a unique situation in Korean, South Korean politics. What's it like? Oh, my everyday life as a member of South Korean, you know, the assembly, I have to face two front. First, I have to face the front of North Korea because, you know, I used to be a former North Korean diplomats. That's why my former, my, you know, North Korean diplomats colleagues, they are all working throughout the world in North Korean embassies. They watch me through internet, my everyday, you know, the political, you know, the life. So that's why, you know, 
as a former North Korean uh, diplomat, actually, I gave up a lot of privilege I enjoyed as a deputy ambassador to UK. So this is my choice to choose, you know, freedom and democracy and free market. So, you know, I have to prove to my colleagues and I have to write a success story because my, I want to prove that my choice was right and their choice was wrong. So, you know, under very great, you know, stress, how can I continue to write success stories to show my North Korean, you know, the diplomats. And on the meanwhile, I have to face second front, that is South Korean front. You know, this is my uh, fourth year in South Korea. Majority of my uh, assembly, you know, members think that, oh, you do not understand South Korea's democracy. You are still very young, understanding, you know, of this, you know, free markets of, of all these things. You know, oh, you are still very young as a politician. That is, it's a kind of, you know, presumption. So every day I want to show to them that, oh, I know everything, you know, I am just, I want, I can do it as a normal politician. So every day life, you know, I have to think about North Korea and also South Korean factors, you know. Okay, so great answer. Here's another question from the audience. What do you want to achieve as a National Assembly member? Oh, I want to be a very successful uh, uh, member of assembly. You know, I want to write a first, you know, success stories because I am the first the member of the assembly uh, who was elected in local constituency. And uh, even to me, it is miracle to be elected by South Korean population, especially in Gangnam, which is, you know, a very symbolic, rich area. So I think uh, this is, I think, the first step and the right way to bring the real reconciliation between the North and uh, South Korea. Because I used to be in elite group of North Korea. And South Korean society accepted me and the people decide to send me to the parliament. So it can give a very favorable signal to North Korea's, you know, the elite group that if, North and South Korea in the long run are united. The people who used to be in elite or high rankings cannot, are not be punished because of their past history. So I think this can give a new kind of new stream of real reconciliation process in inter-Korean relations. Well, that, that it's such an interesting response. We should be here all day, uh, but this is really interesting. This goes to a next question from the audience. Human rights issues, North Korea, how does the regime think about those issues and do they react? Oh, human rights issues, uh, it's really a serious issues to uh, Kim Jong-un regime because uh, Kim Jong-un, together his father Kim Jong-il, they you know, witness the outcome of former dictators like, you know, Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, or, you know, the Milosevic of former Yugoslavia. So they have seen all uh, these, you know, the outcomes of those former dictators. And then another thing which is very peculiar to North Korea is that North Korea now, North Korean system, uh, and the leader is uh, the leadership, are the only one in international arena who criticized every year by the UN. In the United Nations, the resolutions are 
adopted unanimously every year, which is directly targeting the leadership of North Korea. So Kim Jong-un and his family know very well that if there is a collapse of the system, then there would be no you know, future for the whole family. So they fully understand this. So that's why they are very sensitive on human rights issues because a lot of NGOs and the UN system uh, tried a couple of times to refer North Korean case to international criminal court or whatever. So, yeah. so human okay. rights are the issues which North Korean regime do not want to talk or even you know, put on the table. Great insights. Let me get to two last questions here. Uh, I'm going to try to lump some together so the audience feels like they got their questions in. Why is it hard for Americans to see that Pyongyang plans ahead and sticks to its strategic playbook and doesn't react? Do you agree with that statement? And then two, given that, is there a diplomatic method alone that can solve the nuclear and missile uh, issue in North Korea? I think the final answer uh, must be dependent on what the American uh, the government wants to achieve. If American government just wants to contain North Korean threat or just to control the proliferation of North Korea's nuclear arsenal, then I think the diplomatic you know, negotiations are necessary. But the real aim of American administration is to denuclearize North Korea totally, then I don't think that this denuclearization could be done by uh, diplomatic negotiations. I think North Korean system, Kim Jong-un regime, it's same thing with nuclear weapons. Gotcha, okay, this has been a fantastic episode of the Capitol Cable. Thanks to you, Mr. Tay, we are lucky. Victor Sue, great stuff as well. Sorry you didn't get any questions, but you know our special guest is quite popular among our viewers, and uh, we knew that going in, and it would it was borne out in this program. So, Mr. Tay, thank you for your insights. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. We are honored that you appeared on this show. We got to have you back. Um, I think our ratings are going to go through the chart, too. So uh, we want you back even more uh, next time. So, Victor, Sue, again, thanks for all the great stuff here today. Thanks again, everybody. I'm going to end on a light note on a very serious and insightful and fast-moving Capital Cable. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To watch full episodes of the Capital Cable, please go to CSIS.org and visit the Korea Chair Program page. If you have a question for one of our experts about the impossible state, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.